Listen the way you want. Now, we return on The Morning Drive. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Curtin Anthony here. And joining us now in studio, it's the President Pro Tem of the Vermont State Senate, Senator Phil Baruth. Good morning, Senator. Morning, Kurt. Um, so let's get right into it. Uh, before we do though, do you have any favorite game show? We did, we should have uh, a segment on game shows during the seven thirty hour. I guess I was always a wheel of fortune guy. Wheel yeah. of fortune. Past yeah. age act retiring after 41 years. Yeah. yeah. So that's a good one. It is a good one. I mean, in fact, that's one of the game show themes that Anthony played that. Yeah. I used to watch it with my grandparents all the time. Yeah, it's it's fun. Yeah. It's a common theme, you know. It's Hangman, and it's mm-hmm. fun. It's a and you can play with a, a whole variety of age groups, and it's yeah. like Jeopardy too. It's it's both invented by Merv Griffin, but uh, everybody can play. Yeah, and it's fun. So, Phil, this being your first term as this is your first term, yeah. right? As the president pro tem. Yeah. Uh, what was the first term term like as the pro tem? How is it different than being a senator? Yeah, it was super busy. Um, and I think that's the thing that I underestimated maybe more than anything is the workload. Um, so as a, as a legislator in the building, as you know, you can, you can find as much work as you want. Um, I was always in the Senate, somebody who was doing work on certain issues and not doing work on others. And so I could kind of make up the week as I wanted to do it. But in the pro temps job, you have to do everything all at once pretty much eight or nine to five or six. And uh, that was a new schedule for me. And a lot of the things that happen during the day are not uh, slow pitch. They're fast pitch. And so you leave tired at the end of every day. I can imagine that. Did you, did you, as becoming president pro tem, did you, because you've served for a while as senator and you served under a few different pro tems. I think you served uh, with... Becca Ballant, uh, yep. Tim Ash, and probably John, John Campbell. Campbell before yeah. him. Did you like take things you learned from each one of those and and apply it to your term as President Pro Tem? Absolutely. No, they they were all three great in in their own ways. John Campbell was a very very personable person, personal touch on everything, um, and that was kind of his hallmark. Um, Tim Ash knows government better than anybody I've ever met, and so. He just had a real sophisticated policy mind. And Becca Ballin, um, again, somebody with phenomenal people skills and bringing people together and kind of gathering all of their ideas and then moving forward with it. So I would I would say I took a piece from all of them and, and then uh, found that it still wasn't quite enough. So I'm, I'm working to produce my own uh, approach. Because – and do you sort of use the position – I mean, some people – refer to the leadership positions in the house and senate whether it's democrat republican progressive or whatever as herding cats right is that is that a part of it (laughs) yeah i mean um especially we had i'm sure we'll talk about this but we had a lot of override opportunities this time around and you need in the senate 20 people and in, in the house you need 100 and getting to 20 and not missing you know not getting 19 when you think you have 20 that's a very difficult thing. So um, that was mostly the hurting is making sure that everybody was prepared to pull the lever for yes um, before you bring it to the floor. 
Senator from Windsor County, whose name is escaping me right now, Allison Clarkson. Yeah, okay. Senator Clarkson, who I knew well from the House. At the beginning of the session, she was quoted as saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something like, a veto is a failure on all of our parts. It's a failure on part of the legislature, too. Um, we can go back and try to pull that up. I, I, she said something like yeah, that. I don't agree with that. By the way. <laughs> oh, yeah. so, I wanted to ask you if you did if you <laughs> agreed with that, because I, I might ask her at some point. Because, of course, if that were the case, then those number of vetoes would be a failure on everybody's part. Right. Cause right. You didn't find but You don't you don't view that to be the case. No. And I, I love Allison. But, we, you know, we have we have fun disagreements sometimes about government. Um, so one thing I would say is that. In America, we like checks and balances. And, you know, Phil Scott is a very popular governor. And I think people do elect him as a check on the legislature. So no no problem with that. I also think that over the last X number of years, people have uh, seen the Democratic Party and, and the Progressive Party, too, put forward policy ideas that were very popular that were being checked by the governor. And so I think they've elected more Democrats and progressives to overcome that check. And so that's what the veto override is. It's the it's the final check and balance. And we had you on at the beginning of the session. We know we, you had been quoted in the papers as saying, you know, you wanted to be careful about an overreach that yeah. didn't go yeah. too far. One of the things you might have tried to avoid the overreach was on the, maybe a little disagreement with the House about whether you did paid family leave and child care issues on the same yeah. year. Um, but, um, one thing I want to ask you this, Governor Scott's opponent, Brenda Siegel, of course, was pushing him hard in the debates. I listened to all of them or watched some of them and, and or watched some of them. And she pushed him hard on all these issues that were in front of the legislature, um, and chided him on a number of things as well. But he went out and won a, a really what you'd probably refer to as a smashing, overwhelming landslide win of over 70%. So when you come to these issues, but again, again, recognizing at the same time that the Democrats and progressives won a supermajority, individual yeah. legislators. So do you feel that there was any overreach? Did you do you feel that you reached out to the governor governor enough on some of the bills uh, that you avoided that overreach? Um, well, I hope we avoided overreach arrogance. That was a real concern of mine because. You know, when we talk about supermajority, I think people bring to mind this idea that you're going to be callous, you're not going to be listening to the average person, et cetera. You're just going to bull ahead and do it, what you want. And I would say the legislative process is set up to listen to the average person. That's what we do. Um, that's what witness testimony is. And we take months of testimony, listening to people every single day. So I hope we avoided that. But, but what I would say is it's a two-way street. So we did go to the governor on a number of things. His people came to us on a number of things. I'll, I'll give a shout out to Adam Gresham, who's one of my favorite people on the governor's side. And he and I talk pretty frequently about stuff. And I think he has a good head on his shoulders. And, and I listen to him. With that said, we could always be doing more with the fifth floor. So I'll give you an example. On uh, the motel program, we came in for the veto override session and we realized, House and Senate, that we had to do something for that program. We didn't want to open up the budget again. We wanted to try to override on the budget, but we wanted what we called a companion bill. And so we put together a 13-page bill that put more funding into that program so that the final 2,000 people, the most vulnerable, 
could not be exited from the program unless they had an alternate placement. And that made sense to us. We found the money. We went to the governor and had a meeting, the speaker and I, with Phil Scott. And it was, in my mind, exactly the way it ought to be. We we had a very productive meeting. He immediately put a couple of his people on it with us. And within a couple of days, we had their language. We added it to ours. We didn't make a lot of changes to what they did. And the governor's team were happy with it. And they offered to do a joint press release. We didn't really feel that was necessary, but I did thank him uh, on the on the Senate floor. In my mind, that's the perfect outcome and, and maybe the perfect process. And and he was I just listened to it. I was away. So I've been listening to last week's shows and I listened to yeah. his interview. La- yes, last night, actually. And he referenced that and yeah. he felt that that was um, really uh, what he would hoped they could have modeled more of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. with and and he said you know when we we sat down there was only really one issue that we we sat down and, and talked about and it was the housing or he called it yeah. the housing but it's the motel hotel um and there was, there was one other if i could just um step in there so child care which was um a, a huge outcome of this session i think a historic child care investment we did talk with his people quite a lot about that the governor, as you probably know, since he got in, he's talked about child care as something he wanted to work hard to fix. The difference is in approach. So Phil Scott, going back to his first biennium or second biennium, he always wanted to address uh, pre-K and child care by cutting from the K-12 through system. So he would offer investment there if you could cut a corresponding amount out of the K-12 through system. And... We never wanted to do that, no surprise. Um, so that's kind of where we run aground on an issue like that. But again, I, I talked with Adam Gresham even a couple of weeks before we overrode on the child care bill, and they were offering about a third of the amount you would need to, to remake the child care sector. And at the end of the day, we just needed um, more resources and a dedicated funding source, and that's where the governor got off the off the bus to go go back to the motel program which yeah. obviously was a huge sticking point some progressive legislators and a few other like-minded democrats were threatening of course we as we know to they voted against the budget threatened to vote to to uh, sustain the governor's veto if they didn't get some changes um we were able to bring enough senators back with the compromise that you came up mm-hmm. with why initially a lot of the advocates were pointing the finger at the scott administration but why didn't either side come up with this sort of compromise before the session ended? How, why did that not happen? Did it, right. did it only happen because of the advocates making noise about it? Well, I, I, would, um, I would go back to the budget adjustment, which we do in uh, you know, January, February. And during that process, we, we had a lot of testimony on the motel program. So we had DCF in and AHS folks and their testimony constantly um, was that they were ready. They had teams on the ground who would uh, be working with these folks as they exited the program. Um, they testified again and again that they were prepared and ready. So if you look at the budget adjustment and then you look at the first iteration of the budget, we used that testimony. We funded what they said they needed. We thought that funding was sufficient and we thought the preparations were there. The budget passes, and 
the governor vetoes. And then we start to get briefings, on-the-ground briefings from uh, Shayla Livingston, DCF, about where they are on the program. And it was very quickly apparent to all of us that they were about three to six months behind where they had indicated they were. So um, the first briefing with people about to exit uh, the first wave from the motels, the first briefing they said, we're just sending out an RFP now to private providers and municipalities for ideas on how to handle this surge in homelessness. And we were a little stunned uh, because, you know, if you send out an RFP, you're talking a couple of months before you finalize it and get it operationalized. So um, at that point, we started working on what would become the companion bill. Uh, so I, I don't think it's a, it was not duplicity. It was not uh, incompetence on anybody's part. It's a vastly complicated enterprise trying to work with this population. And everybody was doing their best, but we rethought it and drew a new timeline. Part of the uh, thing I think that was unforeseen is there are a lot of uh, apartments that are, would gladly be available for people that are in these programs, but there's squatters left over from yeah. the COVID uh, rental <clears throat> program and the court, the, the backlog in courts just to get people evicted. There's an, a huge number of apartments that are currently occupied uh, that should be open. Yeah. For, for people in need. And it's, it's, it's frustrating. I hear from a lot of landlords. It's very frustrating because they would gladly accept people with vouchers. Uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, but they have nothing they can do. Their hands are tied. Right. And I would just add that the governor's people added a few things to the companion bill. One of them was more money to uh, rehab apartments and bring them back online, as well as money for manufactured homes, things that we can do quickly to provide units. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. You're on the air. Go ahead. You're on the air. One more shot. Okay. Um, Phil, also, I want to ask you this. So in regard to, and look, I've been a person who's criticized my own party at times when I thought it necessary. So I want to ask you this as, as a Democratic leader of the Senate. Um, and I've been asking this to a number of legislators on the show. The Democratic Party put out statements, and I totally get disagreeing with the governor. There's disagreements back and forth. That's what it's all about. But the Democratic Party put out statements uh, during the debate around uh, the clean heat standard, accusing mm -hmm. the governor. We read the statements on the air that they put out calling the governor a liar, saying that he was being dishonest, that he continued to mislead and lie. They used the word lie repeatedly to, to Vermonters. Uh, during the debate about the uh, the uh, motel program, they further said that the governor was a heartless right wing extremist. I have a feeling you might have seen these. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I want to ask you, as as a Democratic leader in the state house and in in the state, um, do you think that that kind of language is helpful to um, politics in Vermont? Does it does it uh, help to keep the level at a area that we wanted to. We always talk about polarization and incivility in mm. politics and not wanting to go down the Washington path. Uh, do you think that they should use that type of language? And have you spoken to them about it if you, if you don't think they should? Short answers. No, yes. Um, so I don't think they should be using that kind of language. And we did speak to them. Um, and by we, I mean House and Senate. So, um, you know, I, I think the people who are running the party are 
qualified professionals and, and I value their work, but they get, they get into the competitive mode and they get juiced up and sometimes they go over the top. And I, th- and I think there was an element of that. With that said, um, I, I had a different issue. It wasn't so much the, the inflammatory rhetoric because the Scott administration doesn't use a lot of that to their credit, but they do something else that I, that I find, uh, you know, objectionable. And I've, I've been trying to call it out where possible. So you'll remember the number $1,200 per Vermonter, I'm sure. So, so Phil Scott and his administration said, if you put together our agenda, that is the democratic agenda, budget, uh, child care, clean heat standard, blah, blah, blah. It was going to cost 1200 to the average Vermonter. And that number went out to news outlets. Everybody reported it breathlessly. I got asked, you know, Stuart Ledbetter, you know, what about this $1,200 per Vermonter? And, and my answer was it's completely made up. And, and I'll give you, I'll give you the key part of that. So in that calculation, they had included 180 million for the clean heat standard, knowing that the bill we passed doesn't mandate anyone to do anything. It, we have to pass another bill in order to do anything. So what they were saying is that possibly a few years from now, maybe 180 million, but it wasn't even 180 million that we mandated. They were estimating how much fuel dealers might raise the price of fuel if we passed a few years from now the clean needs standard. So they included that 180 million, broke it down over each household and added it to this bogus $1,200 number. So I would say it happens on both sides, not necessarily the inflammatory rhetoric, but the, the competition and the drive to spin things in a, in a way that's, um, doesn't pass the smell test. Uh, and, and I would say that calling Phil Scott an extremist just doesn't pass the smell test. Yeah, the extremists get upset. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I pointed that out. I that said, was a good Anthony line. Yeah, yeah, just yeah, ask the just ask get their, plenty of the calls. Ask <laughs> the extremists if they think. So. Uh, the one thing I would ask is, um, and and from 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 our my perspective, at least they were trying to estimate it because yeah. the, this is huge. Particularly the, uh, the the clean heat standard is is a huge impact. It's going to be a huge impact. And did they release that number before or after the the check back was come up with? Because the it check back after. it was after. Yeah. Um, I, I think that most of us think when we get to the check back, we'll have already invested all this money. In this, whatever this system is going to be, whoever's going to administer it, whether it's efficiency, Vermont, or someone's going to monetize it, but that's a separate issue. Um, it's going to be too late to do anything else because we're, we're, we're our, our wagons hitched to California, the Global Solutions Act, and we have no choice. We're, mm. we're screaming up against this man-made deadline. Um, so that, that would be the, the pushback that I've been getting a lot, um, from actually my, Democratic and progressive friends. I mean, when you're from Madison County, right. it's not like we're hang- I'm not. I don't hang out with a lot of Republicans. Uh, <laughs> uh, so that's the pushback Good that I've hear been hearing. <laughs> I thought you'd appreciate that. Well, let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Good morning. I got two questions. Uh, the first one is: uh, after raising taxes on working for monitors, how can you possibly justify doubling your own salary? And added health benefits uh, when other working Vermonters uh, don't even a lot of them don't even get health care for uh, temporary jobs or part-time jobs. And the other question is: 
in regards to the ban on evictions, you did not really answer Anthony's question, uh, which is deals with uh, landlords are, are being are not being reimbursed for renters who refuse to pay their rent because of uh, the government ban. In effect, it's the same as a motel program, which you guys are reimbursing motel owners for homeless, and yet when it comes to landlords, uh, they are being forced to uh, take on renters uh, who would in fact be homeless. So why aren't you reimbursing them because of the you in fact affected the ban so they can't evict their own uh, renters who aren't paying their bills? Bill, hold that thought if you would. Okay. Wish. Those are two questions that it's going to take more than a minute or two, and we're, we're coming up against a break right now. All so right. we'll get into that. If you don't mind, we'll get into that when we come back yeah, sure. we can give a more comprehensive answer. That's great. I, we appreciate you staying through the break, too. So we're going to check. This is The Morning Drive on FM 96.3 AM 620. News Talk WVMT. Welcome back to The Morning Drive, everybody. Kurt and Anthony here, continuing our discussion now with the President Pro Tem of the Vermont State Senate, Senator Phil Baruth from Chittenden County. And uh, if you have a question for Phil, give us a call on the McKenzie Country Classic Hotline, 888-414-0303. And all we ask, you can ask a question about any subject. Just keep it uh, keep it respectful. Um, I can pick up uh, the answers to those two questions. Yes. Um, so before the break, a caller asked two questions. First one about legislator pay. And I want to start by saying that that was one of the two things we could not override the governor on. So it wasn't that the caller is the only person who felt like we shouldn't be raising pay. Can you remind me what the vote was, the original vote in the Senate before the before? The- uh, it was, um, we had two thirds, so it was at least 20 in the Senate, but that was a, a tripartisan vote. We had Republicans vote for the pay raise. We had our one progressive and Democrats but when it became a veto override issue, uh, as sometimes happens, it went back to party identity, and um, and so we didn't have enough. So some senators that had voted for it, one, yeah. two, three, whatever, yep. had changed from supporting it to, right. to supporting and, the governor's veto. Yeah, and I, I don't uh, fault them for that. I mean, I, I do think when you get into an override situation— there's, you know, understandable pressure from the governor's side. Please support me. And on our side, you know, we pressure people, please help us override. And so sometimes things that were bi or tripartisan go back to being part. Not asking for names, unless you want to give them. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but was there was there somebody on your side that, that flipped? Because uh, we had one senator in here, no. I will just say, that seemed that voted for it initially but seemed a little shaky in terms of really supporting it no no there was nobody on our side who flipped there were uh republicans um and and again i i I won't name them and i i value them as colleagues and so so and then if you could address a little bit more obviously the caller's question was about at a time when you yeah, know, yeah. fees are going up and taxes are going up and et cetera, et cetera. And it's cost of living in Vermont is not cheap um, to to double legislative pay. And I get it that it's over to the next two terms. Yeah. But still, it's it's one of those things that uh, I've talked to a lot of Vermonters. I know Anthony has who who just it sort of rankles them to yeah. think of that. No, I, I understand. We are the only ones who can raise our pay. And so no matter how much we raise our pay, the truth is going to be 
legislators are raising legislator pay because constitutionally that's the only way it can happen. I would say a couple of things. First of all, there hasn't been a pay raise of, of any real note for 20 years. And but there's inflationary index yes, pay increases, right? Yes. But in terms of getting us closer to the average Vermont salary. So that was the, the peg we were using. Um, I think people walk around with the idea that legislators make a lot of money. And I just want to, you know, really have people understand the figure. $14,800. That's what we make a year. $14,000. So if you put it that way to people, I think they say, oh, that's a little lower than I thought it was. So what this would have done is brought it closer to $30,000. And it would have allowed for people who don't have health care anywhere else to get it from the state the way other state employees do. I'd like to just follow well, up just a little mm-hmm. bit more on that, Phil, though, because, I mean, obviously I was a legislator. I had to yeah. declare my taxes, that legislative pay, and I had to declare $20,000 because I had to declare the meal money, yeah. which is almost $70 per day. Most Vermonters, some probably do, but most Vermonters don't get their meals paid for. That is a pretty big benefit. And I don't begrudge it. It's just that it's when you add that in, it's closer to 20000 and that's not getting rich. No, Nobody expects or the yeah. legislators aren't, aren't supposed to get rich. But when you look at it, though, that it's a four to four and a half month job where you expect legislators to go back to their other job, you're not expected to get by on the fifteen to $20,000 that it really is when you include all the other benefits. Um, so I still think when you look at the whole picture, it's not it's not a bad gig. I know you're, if you're an attorney, if you're making big salaries outside the legislature, it's, it's not a lot. Yeah, but- I think if you're somebody who's... Um- as I am, employed elsewhere uh, at the the end of your uh, career uh, where you have some money, you have um, maybe a, a house to live in, et cetera. It's one thing. But, you know, I have colleagues. We had 10 new senators come in, mm-hmm. 50 new House members. And a lot of those were young folks. And they got, you know, spun up. They ran campaigns, energetic, brought new ideas, new energy, then came in and they're dealing with the reality of um, many of them can't get time off from their jobs. So they're, they're fighting for time to do the job, but they also can't make it work with the kind of salaries that they're making early in their careers. So, so the last point I would make is if we want to diversify the legislature in terms of not just having uh, a vast majority of retired people, if we want some young people there, um, we really have to make it viable for them to do the job how does the law work it's i've always understood that employees have to allow you to be they, given time off to serve in the legislature they have to make an arrangement with you so it doesn't have to be a good arrangement um so i have colleagues in the legislature who um have friction with their employer constantly about we need you to do this we need you to do that and it's competing with the legislative session then I have other people who have uh, really sympathetic employers who allow them the time and, and then allow them to make it up elsewhere. Wouldn't it work better for those employees and their businesses, whoever they're working for, if it was a defined uh, date of adjournment, a definite date of adjournment that was a little shorter, like 90 days, like that has been suggested by Governor Scott and Governor Douglas before yeah. him? Yeah, I would say, and you've been there, it's really hard to write an end to the session because – we had a veto override session, right? We have emergencies that happen. There's an impeachment trial uh, 
pending that looks like it'll be maybe October. So, you know, you're going to be asked to come in for emergencies. Although that's still outside the regular session. It is. But I'm saying even at the end of the regular session, it's hard to know how to land that ship. And sometimes it's a week later. Sometimes it's a month later. And we've got a call, but we'll get to the second part of this question after this next. The renters. All right. Let's uh, go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes. Good morning. Uh, I had. I guess I had two parts here. Uh, one <laughs> Everybody is, has I was two curious parts. Curious how they justified the twenty percent across the board DMV increases, and uh, I didn't hear anything mentioned about the they wanted health care included with their pay raise uh, in the legislature, and that's a huge amount of money just for that that the taxpayers would have to foot the bill for. Thank you. Bye. Um, so the. Uh now, what was 20%? The DMV. The DMV, uh, DMV fees. The $26 million. So, so uh, what I'll say about the DMV fees is this. Phil Scott, since he got in, has said no new taxes, no new fees. And so the DMV fees are not the only fees that he's refused to raise. Mm-hmm. And what people should know about fees is that fees are calculated to run the program with no overage. So DMV fees are calculated to run the programs that are needed and not create a surplus and not go into deficit. Since Phil Scott has not raised them for a number of bienniums, they have fallen behind. So if you were raising them a little bit every year, the way you should be, there would be no big increase. The reason we have a big increase is because Phil Scott has artificially been refusing to raise them to the point where ultimately you either have to kill the DMV programs themselves or you have to raise fees what the governor was saying is basically you guys do it through an override. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pull that so switch. My, my question to you is because I, I believe uh, we have, if not the highest, some of the highest yep. DMV fees already in the country. We're primarily a rural state. So a lot of lower income Vermonters need their vehicles uh, mm-hmm. and uh, to work. Um, so do we have the most inefficient DMV in America? I would say right now we have a structural deficit in the transportation program, and that's that's due to a number of things. One is people have moved to electric vehicles, so we're not getting the gas taxes that we used to get. Um, we, we just generally are not raising enough money to keep our roads. I don't know if people have noticed, but I, I don't think the roads are looking uh, spanking new this year. So uh, we, we need money to raise uh, enough to repair our roads, to run the programs. I would just say that, you know, what what Governor Scott unfortunately has decided to do is create an eight or a 10, who knows how many years he will be there, year period where there's no raise in the fees. And then the governor who comes in after him is going to be faced with the reality of needing big increases. So we're trying to avoid big increases by, uh, in this case, raising DMV fees where they should have been going up the last six or eight years. Now, what do you say to guy who runs a transportation committee in the Senate and probably yep. is more <laughs> tuned into transportation than just about anybody? Because my friend Senator DeMoss. There you go, exactly. <laughs> um, and one of your Democratic colleagues in your caucus who was on the show and said, "Look, we didn't need to do this. We didn't need to raise the fees." He said, "I support the budget because it does support." Um, the things that we want to do in transportation, but he agreed with the governor that there was no need to raise fees. 
Right, because they were going to use one-time money to fill the gap. And I would say that both Dick Mazza and and uh, Jane Kitchell, chair of appropriations, and the governor would all three agree we shouldn't be using one-time money for ongoing expenses. That's a mantra of the right, of the, the GOP, right? You need uh, You need to be paying ongoing expenses and not using one-time money to to extend us out there. And in fact, that's what's been happening with the transportation program. Let's uh, go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. Yes. uh, Good morning, Senator. Thank you for your service. Um, The conversation has been pretty civil so far, but I just (laughs) about to end. (laughs) (laughs) Dale's usually pretty civil. (laughs) Sometimes. I, I just heard you say something about if you raise the fees or taxes continually, then you will never have that large tax increase. To me, that's the problem. If we have a philosophy that we're going to continually raise taxes and fees, that's that's not good either. I'm not saying that a fee and a tax increase that's extremely high is good, but if we go in with the philosophy that if we raise it every year, we're really going to be into more problems than we already are. Well, and and I I might have miscommunicated that. I'm not saying that you raise every fee every year. So whenever we have a fee bill that goes through the legislature, goes through our finance committee, they take testimony, they um, hear from average Vermonters, they hear from the agency, and they decide on a constant basis, do we need a raise now or don't we? Um, what what has happened, though, is the governor's eliminated that process and just said, whether we need one or not, we're not having one. Um, so I, I don't think that's good either. Um, the other thing I would say is, you know, in terms of consistently raising the fees, so inflation goes up and there's an inflation index, things get more expensive. I, I would ask it this way, would people want their raises where they work to stop? Or would you want to raise to, you know, meet inflation at least every year? And I think most people would say, if they can get it, they want the raise every year because they need it. I think that, that part of the, the frustration is that um, in the private sector, a lot of people have foregone raises and are actually making less money than they did prior to the uh, pandemic. Yeah. Uh, and that the next five years in Vermont seem daunting, if not impossible, for most small business owners. Uh, and that's just the reality of it. I, I mean, and, and the larger companies are just looking at, at, at the forecast and, and, and the taxation and some of the programs and the affordability, uh, in addition to the housing and some other stuff and are just mm-hmm. making decisions that Vermont is not a viable option to grow their business or continue to have it here. Uh, and I just, I, 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 I get that a lot from a lot of people and mm-hmm. I just wanted to hear you, hear your thoughts about that because that seems to be the, the, the biggest concern is, okay, we've got this pile of cash, whether we whether it's continual funding or one-time money, but next year, after all this $400 million surplus is gone, um, and we've got the next five years ahead of us, yeah, and, and with the current, I'm sorry, I know that they're just little pieces, 0.4% payroll tax and things like that, but when, when the large corporations look at investing in a state, Vermont drops to the bottom of the list. And then when the smaller companies try to exist and they go to their bank and they say, well, here's my new cash flow projections. 
it doesn't seem to work for either group. Let's hear from Phil because we're getting we're starting to get short on time, and we got to get back to the renter yeah, question yeah. too in a couple minutes. So I I just want to make it clear I I don't like taxes. I, I don't think anybody in the Democratic Party likes taxes. It's not it's not that we go in rubbing our hands in glee like how how can we raise people's taxes? Are you today? sure you don't do that? <laughs> but, <laughs> but but what I would say is we we tend to view it a little differently. We we look at something like childcare. So. You know, when, when 20 years ago, when I had kids in childcare, 25 years ago, it was more than my mortgage then. Mm-hmm. Um, it was insane. And it's even worse now. So if you're a family and you have two kids, you can't find a slot. If you do find a slot, you can't afford to put two kids through. So what we said was, let's, uh, on, on the, the payroll tax, let's have less than a half a percent, which most people won't, uh, won't um you know be burdened by that and we'll put that money together and we'll use it wisely to decrease the costs on families who have kids so and we'll also increase the pay of people in the child care sector if we do those two things we'll get rid of the state of emergency we have now which is people can't find spots for their kids and so they don't work they stay home with the kid so we want to supercharge the economy, and we want to help those families and those providers at the same time. We think that's all going to be an incentive to people to move to Vermont, including companies. Well, a lot of the child care uh, facilities in Vermont are being purchased by a French conglomerate, apparently, who sees a very profitable aspect with all the state support. And, and there are some safeguards in the bill about um, raising the cost of child care. Let's go to the phones. Good morning. You're live on The Morning Drive. Yeah, I'm I'm retired, so I don't really get much of a pay increase. Um, I just wondered, do you take us into account? And just everything is going up, and I just really need you to understand that people can't afford all this. And the other thing is I just got my insurance bill yesterday, my car insurance bill. I have a 2019 Altima, and that went up $150 a year, so I called about it. And it went up because it costs more to fix them. And um, also because of a rate increase um, on the part of the insurance company, so $150 a year is a lot for a uh, for a retired person. And all this is a lot for a retired person: the heat standard and so forth and so on, and childcare and meals that a lot of kids don't even uh, need, and um, and probably a lot of it's wasted. So, anyways, I will get off the phone and listen to your comments. Thanks. Phil, that's what you do hear a lot from average Vermonters is yeah. we can only afford so much. And so, again, you talked about overreach. When you come back next year, we know that the paid family leave is going to be back. They may be good ideas in a lot of ways, but they are expensive programs. And yeah. And and to paid family leave, you mentioned it earlier, but there was a proposal from the House to do both paid family leave and child care, add those costs together. The Senate didn't go along with that. And that was on purpose to shrink the amount that we were going to affect people's pocketbooks. So to the caller's comments, um, you know, I just want to say that I, 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 one time I had a guy write to me and he said, um, you know, would it help if I introduced you to some real Vermonters, you know? And, and I just had to laugh because, you know, I, I was on the school board for four years in Burlington and I went door to door and I talked to, you know, thousands of people on fixed incomes. I don't know anybody who talks to that many people about their situation. You know, 
politicians, as much as we, uh, as we, you know, give them a hard time and we, you know, uh, laugh at them in certain ways, they're really the only people that come out and listen to you about your, what's going on with you and your family. So, and maybe it's around election time and maybe we should do it more, but we do listen. We do take testimony. We do, um, try our best to understand in terms of the childcare bill. I can just tell you, I've had hundreds of emails from people who are at their wits end. They can't make ends meet and they feel like here government is making a difference on their bottom line. So we are creating affordability by taking a very, very small amount from a very large number of people. We are really making a big difference for kids and families in Vermont. Let's go back to the phones. Good morning. You're live on the morning drive. You're on the air, and please make your question fairly concise because we're running short on time. I'm just, go I'm just go ahead and answer no. <laughs> That's okay. Well, the answer to your question, whatever it may have been, was let's, no. Let's Can you go back, back to the it? rental thing? Yeah, yeah the yeah. rental. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I wanted to have Phil address the Anthony question about health care for part-time employees. Yeah, yeah. That, is, that is the other thing, of, particularly for self-employed people. It's been, it's been an issue for a long time. Yeah. Healthcare, the cost of healthcare, uh, participating in the pool, not in the pool, back and forth. Um, one year it was cheaper to buy direct from the insurance company. It absolutely infuriates virtually everybody who has to pay for healthcare um, that a part-time employee would get full-time benefits when a lot of companies, whether it's mm-hmm. legal or not, I've been corrected and uncorrected a thousand times. If you have a part-time employee and you mm-hmm. want to offer them full-time benefits, it's against the law. So this this says yeah. if if you're going to work ninety days, one hundred and twenty days, but we're going to pay your health care for the whole yeah I, that, but, that that kind of rubs against a lot of folks yeah. But we are not part time employees. I'm I'm a senator year round. Um, obviously, the pro tem job is more complicated and it it requires more time year round than than most senators and reps. But senators and reps work all year round, and if you talk to them, constituent services don't stop. And so when we had in a small amount that people were going to make in the off session, it was designed to compensate reps and senators for all of that work we do. So I'll leave here today and, and it, it would not be crazy to have somebody call me up and say, I'm losing my benefits. Can you get involved on my behalf and go to bat for me with the Agency of Human Services? And I'll do that. And and it doesn't matter that we're not in session. Can you give a quick answer to the, did we go back to the rental question? We didn't, but I'll try to do it as quickly as I can. So um, I, I understand the caller's uh, frustration. There are backlogs in a lot of areas. The, the judicial system is completely backlogged. We've been doing everything we can to unstick that, um, including bringing on retired judges and, and other you know, ways to help. With that said, it's going to take a long time to work our way out of the holes we got.